Welcome back to The Law. I am P.K. Williams, and this is episode 10, Fleming v. Nestor, because it's spelled with an O-R at the end. We are going to discuss Social Security, the New Deal program, started by FDR and has only grown since then, like most government programs. Fleming is spelled with two M's, which is not the usual spelling, but in this case, that's what we got. Fleming v. Nestor. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Episode 10, Fleming v. Nestor, 1960 U.S. Supreme Court opinion. It was 5-4, to four, so it was a close one, and it was written by Associate Justice John Marshall Harland, which may ring a bell. If you recall back to the Plessy v. Ferguson case, a guy with the exact same name wrote it. The dissent, that is. It was this guy's grandfather. So the more and more I do these things, you realize we are really in an oligarchy with a bunch of families that uh, have a whole lot of say about what's going on. That means they're not nice people, but it means it's an oligarchy. So this case was 27 pages in total, but the main opinion was only 11 pages. The remaining pages, three separate dissents. Get right to the point, and I will back up this statement with quotations directly from Fleming v. Nestor, and another case that it cites that's very important. That Social Security is the most successful fraud in the history of the world. Convincing people that the money taken out of their check for Social Security was any different than the rest of the money taken out of their check. That's the fraud. That money was gone the second it was taken out of your paycheck, just like income tax. It didn't go into a fund that you paid into. The only way to eventually get those benefits, or any benefits that have been promised, Social Security or otherwise, is that those benefits are taken out of someone else's paycheck who has earned it recently. So if somebody currently working is paying for your benefits, that's what you did when you were working, but it's not an insurance policy. It's not a fund. It's certainly not a trust fund. It's just a tax that goes into the general fund, the general treasury fund, and Congress can do whatever the heck they want to with that money. And the Supreme Court spells this out. It's in the statute itself, which we'll get into. If you want to think about paying into something, because that's what you hear all the time, right? Oh, I paid into Social Security. I've got a right to give to my benefits. You don't. And we'll get into the specific language of why you don't. But if you want to think about paying into something, think about a pile of cash and you've got one of those, you get say you got a snow shovel and you're taking that snow shovel and you're scooping up piles of cash and you're paying it into a furnace. Yeah, that's what you're doing. That money is gone. And people don't want to believe that. And I get it. They want to believe in some supreme benevolent being looking out for them. That can be God. For some, it's God. For some, it's the government. For some, it's both. When it's the government, especially the federal government, just listen to all the promises that are still being made today. Free healthcare, free college, free whatever. The government will take care of you. Obviously, this is not a new phenomenon. I mean, it was going on in FDR's days. It's been going on forever. And let me quote the last good Republican, Barry Goldwater, who dealt with this in his election in 1964 against LBJ. Goldwater, addressing this phenomenon, said, It is a fact that Lyndon Johnson and his curious crew seem to believe that progress in this country is best served simply and directly through the ever-expanding gift power of the everlastingly growing federal government. One thing we all know, and I assure you I do, there's a much easier way to get votes than my way. It always has been. It's political daddyism, and it's as old as demagogues and despotism. In the quote. Indeed it is, Barry. Indeed it is. Despite what people have this longing to believe, the government is not benevolent. To the contrary, the government is malevolent. The government is not a tool of freedom. It is a tool of oppression. And Social Security is a great example of that. So let's look at the program itself. Have you heard of Ida Mae Fuller? She was the very first recipient 
of a Social Security benefit check. Her check was dated January 31st, 1940. She had been a legal secretary. She had retired in 1939, late in November of 39. Her first check was January of 40. She started collecting benefits January of 1940. She was 65 years old and she lived to be 100. So she had another 35 years left, good for her. She died in 1975. Ida Mae Fuller worked for three years under the Social Security program because she was there when it started. She paid in for those three years into, and I'm putting air quotes around paid into Social Security, $24.75. They didn't take as much out back then and people didn't make as much because of inflation, but she paid $24.75 into, air quotes, Social Security actually just a tax. She paid that much in taxes that went to the Social Security program. So she paid $24.75 in taxes that went into the General Treasury of the United States. Her initial monthly check was $22.54. That's almost just $2 less than her entire payment into the system. And every time I say into, it's with air quotes. Three years paying in, $24.75. Very first check, $22.54. And I, like I said, she lived to be 100. Her lifetime, she collected a total of $22,888.92 in Social Security benefits. Astute listeners might notice a problem with this capital flow. So from day one, it's been a direct redistribution of money from the working to the retired. And we just need, people need to just acknowledge that. That's just a fact. And who are the people in this case? It's Fleming v. Nestor. Let's start with Nestor first, because he's the more interesting person. He was a Bulgarian immigrant, came to the U.S. in 1913, and he was employed from December 36 to January of 55. That was when Social Security was applicable to what he was making, his paychecks he was making. So he paid into it for 19 years. He became eligible for retirement and for those benefits, air quotes around benefits, in November of 55, and he he started collecting $55.60 a month. In July of the next year, 1956, so just seven, eight months later, he was deported. He was deported because he had been a member of the Communist Party from 1933 to 1939, so for six years. And pursuant to a congressional law that was enacted in September of 1954, he was thereupon denied payment of any further Social Security benefits. So he paid into it for 19 years. Congress started getting really spooked about communists, the whole Red Scare thing, right? And they passed a law that said if an immigrant is deported because he was a member of the Communist Party, he wouldn't get Social Security benefits. Well, he paid into it for 19 years, right? And if it's an, actually an insurance policy, if it's actually a contractual document or device, if it's actually a trust fund, that money is his, right? And so he sued. That's what he said. This money is mine. And that's how it was sold by FDR and the New Deal Congress. It is a trust fund. You're paying into it. You will get your money out when you retire. All that was a lie, but he believed it. And why shouldn't he? I mean, people want to believe the government. Hopefully, after listening to these podcasts, they will be disabused of that notion, but people want to. I get it. And the thought crossed my mind. Think about the irony of being denied social security benefits because you are a member of the Communist Party. I don't know. It's way too meta for me. And also note, just look at what Congress is doing here in a time frame situation. So they passed this law that was going to deprive him of social security benefits in 1954, yet he had quit the Communist Party in 1939, like 15 years before that. But if you had ever been in the Communist Party, and this case isn't about the First Amendment, but you were probably asking yourselves, hey, how can they do that with the First Amendment? And that's an excellent question. It's only really dealt with in one of the dissents, but that is an excellent point. And I don't think you would be able to do that today or Congress wouldn't be able to do something similar today based upon membership in a political party. So Nestor said, hey, I paid into it. I have a right to it. And he won at the district court level. The district court held that the denial of benefits was a violation of the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment because it deprived him of an accrued property right. And the district court held in his favor saying that he 
did have an accrued property right, and the Fifth Amendment would not allow that to be taken without due process of law. But hold on for what the Supreme Court said. So that's Nestor. Who is Fleming? Because you know I like to get into who these people are. Fleming is Arthur Sherwood. Fleming, and he was the director or the secretary of the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare from 1958 to 1961 when this case was being adjudicated. He was part of Dwight Eisenhower's cabinet. Fleming, a well-connected white guy, his dad was a federal judge. So again, this whole oligarchy thing, right? Speaking of well-connected white guys, the opinion was written by the aforementioned Associate Justice John Marshall Harlan, who when I first read that, I'm like, how many Supreme Court justices were named after John Marshall? Well, I think it's only two, and that was the grandson and the grand father. The grandfather wrote the lone dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson, which we talked about it. The modern day, or the, the 20th century John Marshall Harlan, was a Rhodes Scholar, just like Chris Christopherson, by the way. And he was generally considered part of the conservative wing of the Warren court. He wrote a whole bunch of dissents. Some people called him a great dissenter. And he certainly, I certainly agree with some of his judicial philosophies. He thought the Supreme Court should not be considered, quote, a general haven for reform movements, end quote. Another big thing about him at the time, it was a big deal. He disagreed with the doctrine of incorporation, which made the Bill of Rights applicable to the states because they weren't originally. There's no dispute about that. We, we can discuss the idea of incorporation at another time, but the 14th Amendment has its own due process clause, and most of the Bill of Rights has been incorporated to apply to the states through the 14th Amendment. That's another topic. But he didn't like he didn't like that idea. He's got a great quote in one of his dissents. This was in a dissent to Reynolds versus Sims. This quote is good. He said, These decisions give support to a current mistaken view of the Constitution and the constitutional function of this court. This view, in short, is that every major social ill in this country can find its cure in some constitutional principle and that this court should take the lead in promoting reform when other branches of government fail to act. The Constitution is not a panacea for every blot upon the public welfare, nor should this court, ordained as a judicial body, be thought of as a general haven of reform movements, end quote. Yeah, he nails that, right? He certainly does. Apparently, he was a pretty good guy, too. He was noted for his tolerance and civility. Other justices, clerks, other attorneys that were representing people before the court. Another famous dissent, he wrote, quote, This liberty is not a series of isolated points pricked out in terms of the taking of property, the freedom of speech, press, and religion, the right to keep and bear arms, the freedom from unreasonable searches and seizures, and so on. It is a rational continuum, which broadly speaking includes a freedom from all substantial arbitrary impositions and purposeless restraints. I like it. That's pretty close. If he had just dropped the two adverbs and said, it includes a freedom from all impositions and restraints, but he had to say freedom from substantial arbitrary impositions and purposeless restraints. He's close. He also wrote that, quote, this court does not serve its high purpose when it exceeds its authority, even to satisfy justified and patience with the slow workings of the political process. For when, in the name of constitutional interpretation, the court adds something to the Constitution that was deliberately excluded from it, the court, in reality, substitutes its view of what should be so for the amending process. And that's exactly one of the major points I've been trying to make. So he definitely nails that. Whether or not something is moral or immoral, just or unjust, fair or unfair, good policy or bad policy, has nothing to do with whether or not something is constitutional 
constitutional or not. And the Supreme Court should not make things constitutional that aren't there in the name of a failed political process that's doing something unjust. One more opinion noteworthy of this John Marshall Harlan. He wrote for the majority in a famous opinion, Cohen v. California, and that was the one that upheld the First Amendment and said that wearing a jacket with the words, this is not suitable for young ears, fuck the draft. It was speech protected by the First Amendment. It was later on described, that, that opinion later on described as one of the greatest ever written on freedom of expression. In this opinion, this is where he famously wrote, one man's vulgarity is another's lyric. There are a whole lot of popular musicians, I think, that would readily agree with that assessment. He retired uh, just a few months, I think, before he died at 72 years old of spinal cancer. Nixon appointed his successor, which was William Rehnquist. But back to Fleming v. Nestor, which he wrote as well. So Ephraim Nestor, he believed the lies FDR told him, Congressional New Deal told him. He paid into the Social Security program. He had a right to the benefits that the New Deal promised him. At least that's what he thought. But the government can lie with impunity. They continue to lie. The very name of the deduction on your paycheck is a lie. FICA. Most people don't know what that stands for, but it's Federal Insurance Contributions Act. Two words out of the four are lies. It's not insurance and it's not a contribution. One asks for a contribution. No one asks for your payroll deduction. They just take it. That makes it a tax not a contribution. So you can see how the government lies all the time. Patriot Act is not patriotic. Net neutrality is not neutral. And Social Security doesn't involve a trust that you pay into. An important case that Fleming relied upon was Helvering v. Davis. This was a 1937 case. So this case got to the Supreme Court before they even started paying out benefits to Ida May and other people. And so the whole structure, the whole bureaucracy of Social Security was challenged as being unconstitutional. And in 1937, the court said... It was constitutional because of the general welf general welfare clause of Article One, Section One, which is a whole other problem. But that's what the Supreme Court said in 1937. They also said Social Security is not a contributory insurance program. Quote: The proceeds of both the employee and employer taxes are to be paid into the Treasury, like any other internal revenue generally, and are not earmarked in any way. In the quotation. So when people say they're paying into something and it's their money, they're believing a lie. Because even before Social Security started paying out money to beneficiaries, the Supreme Court said, because they read the statute, they know how it works. FICA deduction goes into the Treasury Department, goes into the same bank account, so to speak, like all the other money that is collected. They're not earmarked in any way. It just all goes into the big fund. And as Cato noted in a particular uh, article on the topic, they point out that if you had a privatized social security system, you would have full property rights in that retirement account. You would own the money in them the same way if you own money in, a, in an IRA or a 401k. Congress would have no ability to touch the money that you put into a private retirement fund. But they can do whatever they want with the social security money because it's not an actual insurance program. It's certainly not a trust fund. And even the Helvering case describes the deductions as taxes. They don't say contributions, they say taxes. And so in Fleming v. Nestor, relying heavily upon that Helvering case 27 years earlier, said that the district court erred in holding that this section deprived Apelli of an accrued property right. Apelli's right to Social Security benefits cannot properly be considered to have been of that order. In other words, it's not an accrued property right. The Fleming court went on, the program is financed through a payroll tax, not a contribution, a tax levied on employees in covered employment and on their employers. Remember, a tax is not a contribution. 
And in essence, restating some of Hilverton, the Supreme Court said, quote, the tax proceeds are paid into the Treasury as internal revenue collections, period. That's all they are. Nothing special about them, despite their own little line on your paycheck and despite the lies behind the New Deal's promises. Now, a trust is a real legal thing. You're probably familiar with them on some level. You might be a beneficiary of one or know someone who is. You might have set up a trust for someone else. But when you have an actual legal trust, the document that has been executed with directions in it, a trustee is appointed. The trustee is named to take care of the money and the assets in the trust. The trustee owes a fiduciary duty to the trust, to the beneficiaries of the trust. If the trustee violates that duty, he's personally personally liable for whatever he costs the corpus of the trust. And it takes certain legal formalities to create one. None of this is done with Social Security. Nobody pretends it was. They just like to use those words so people will think of a trust fund that's actual and real with a real fiduciary duty owed to the beneficiaries. But it's not. Stealing the word trust was a good way to just sell it to further the fraud, make people believe that they had a right to it when they did not. The court makes an obvious point. It is apparent that the non-contractual interest of an employee covered by the Act, the Social Security Act, cannot be soundly analogized to that of the holder of an annuity whose right to benefits is bottomed on his contractual premium payments. Ties into with a trust, right? An annuity is an actual contract. It's a document that's been executed. There's uh, at least two parties to it. They each have certain rights and obligations that are written down in that contract. One person pays a certain amount of money. The other one agrees to pay out a certain amount of money upon certain things happening. Social Security is not a contract, and that's what the Supreme Court is pointing out. The fact that it's not a contract should be apparent, I would think. There's no voluntary agreement between the parties. You're forced to participate in it. So they're using these legal words of things that actually exist in an entirely different context. So John Marshall Harlan, writing for the majority, makes it even clearer when he says, quote, to engraft upon the social security system a concept of accrued property rights would deprive it of the flexibility and boldness and adjustment to ever-changing conditions which it demands. It was doubtless out of an awareness of the need for such flexibility that Congress included in the original act and has since retained a clause expressly reserving it, quote, the right to alter, amend, or repeal any provision of the act. So that's from the Supreme Court case. And the statute itself says Congress can alter, amend, or repeal it at any time. That's not a trust fund. It's not a contract. That is a welfare benefit that they decided to dole out, despite the lies that you've been told and most people believe. So it can't be any clearer. Congress can change it at any time. And that's not a trust. It's anyone who uses the word trust when it comes to Social Security is either a dupe or perpetrating the fraud on purpose. So let's try to end the people that have been duped by this and try to let them know the truth. And then a very practical aspect that the Supreme Court pointed out about this statutory construction of the Social Security program, they said, quote, one benefit which may be thought to accrue to the economy from the Social Security system is the increased overall national purchasing power resulting from taxation of productive elements of the economy to provide payments to the retired and disabled. Okay, end quote. All right, let's ignore the Keynesian aspect of that, which is completely wrong. But what they are clearly stating, the court has recognized that current working people are paying directly to the retired. And they're saying Congress can do that. That's just what Congress does, right? The general welfare, they can do that. But they're not pretending that it's a trust. This is a direct redistribution of money from the working to the retired. Even today, money going out in Social Security benefits has been taken out of someone's paycheck who's working right now. I mean, that can't be any clearer. It's been that way since day one, since Ida May got her first check. George Mason economist Walter Williams 
wrote in a 2013 column in response to a whole bunch of his indignant readers, because he mentioned this at one point. They all said, hey, what are you talking about, Walter? I paid into it. I've got a right to Social Security. In responding to these people, and you, they still out there, still out there, man, you mentioned Social Security as not being anything more than a welfare program, and you will get lit up on social media, right? Because people have bought into, they want to believe in the benevolence and the rightness and justness of the federal government. We need to disabuse people of this notion. Walter Williams wrote in this article, Decades after Americans had been duped into thinking that the money taken from them was theirs, the Social Security Administration belatedly and very quietly tried to clean up its history of deception. Its website explains, Entitlement to Social Security benefits is not a contractual right. It adds, There has been a temptation throughout the program's history for some people to suppose that their FICA payroll taxes entitled them to a benefit in a legal contractual sense. Continuing on with the Social Security's own website, Congress clearly had no such limitation in mind when crafting the law. Back to Walter Williams, he says, the Social Security Administration failed to mention in this website that it was them themselves, along with Congress, that created the lie that the checks will come to you as a right. And when the Social Security Administration refers to Congress's intent, they're talking about that part in there that says they can alter or amend it at any time. The government is not your benevolent uncle. It is a malevolent force intent on keeping and accruing power to itself. And as Goldwater noted, quoted earlier, promising free stuff is a great way to win elections. It still is. It was for FDR and it still is. We can do our best. We got to keep those brush fires burning, letting people know that Congress itself, in the very statute creating Social Security, says it can alter or end benefits at any time. And the Supreme Court, in at least two cases, has noted that there's no trust fund, your FICA deduction is treated just like your income tax deduction, and goes to the exact same place as your regular old income tax deduction, and present-day benefits are paid out of the checks of people working today. Lots of people can't handle it. They don't want to admit Social Security is just another welfare program. And that's a testament to the efficacy of the federal government in committing fraud against the people of the United States. I am D.K. Williams, and this has been The Law. This has been Episode 10, Fleming v. Nestor and the Fraud that is Social Security in the United States of America. We are brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Please holla at me, Twitter, at BlueCarp, Facebook.com slash blue carp send me a note let me know what you're thinking just let me know you heard it let me know you don't like it or you do like it or you're indifferent whatever it may be i need attention i'm an attention whore so send me a note any comments whatsoever appreciated and as always remember freedom is dangerous live dangerously